Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Breaker, Public Radio, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and more. You can also listen on your smart device. All you have to do is say, Alexa, or hey, Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit our Corvette Today website. It's CorvetteTodayPodcast.com. Also, sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at CorvetteToday.ck.page. And don't forget to join the Corvette Today Facebook group as well. I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette today, Hendrick Chevrolet of Kansas City. Hendrick is the largest seller of Corvettes in the Kansas City area, and they ship nationwide. Visit ChevyUSA.com or call them at 913-384-1550. 913-384-1550. Also, MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. If you'd like to join a new, vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly Corvette community. You'll meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. My guest today is a man that is from St. Charles, Michigan. He's a graduate of Eastern Michigan University. He has a Bachelor of Science in History, and he's a car guy. He's a member of the Society of Automotive Engineers. He's also with the National Automotive and Automobile Museum and a past board member from the National Automotive History Collection at the Detroit Public Library. Right now, he is the curator for the National Corvette Museum, Mr. Derek Moore. Derek, thank you for taking the time, and welcome to Corvette today. Oh, not a problem, Steve. Always happy to uh, hop on and talk cars and Corvettes. Absolutely. Derek, you've got a great automotive background. Talk about your previous automotive history. You've been restoring cars for a long time. You've been on different boards like the Henry Ford Museum and the Alfred P. Sloan Museum. It's a great lead-in for your job there at the National Corvette Museum. Yeah, so I, I guess you'd say I kind of grew up in the automotive hobby, you know, the, the car lifestyle. And my father was actually, a, or well, well, he was, he's kind of retired now, at least from the body shop line of work, but he was a, a General Motors body man. Oh. You know, working dealerships and happened to be that he was, seemed to be the only one back when he was starting it out that wanted to do any work with fiberglass. So he wound up getting all the Corvette jobs and going to tech center to take all the classes on Corvettes. And he always on the side also restored cars and now has his own restoration shop full time that he's been doing for probably close to 20 years now. I grew up really restoring. Actually, the, the first car I really remember working on with dad in the shop was an early 70, 71 Corvette doing some fiberglass work on it. And you know, I'm like a 10-year-old kid out in the, the shop cutting up fiberglass and mixing it with resin and doing that whole thing and just kind of spiraled from there. Wound up going off to college and thought I would be a chemistry major, but a couple things changed my mind and I went into history and applied kind of that love for the automobile to history and studied the history of technology and wrote a lot of papers 
probably to my professor's chagrin on the history of the automobile. I think they asked me a couple times to do something different. I kind of decided I wanted to probably go into the museum field. Of course, my dad always told me he didn't want me to just be a body man or something like that. He wanted something better for his son. And well, you know, museums could be fun. He says, I do the same thing just with a degree. But (laughs) I got my foot in at Henry Ford Museum and uh, kind of started my career there, wound up in the conservation department there, actually studying and apprenticing in conservation. A lot of people have heard of art conservators and folks that go in and repair fine art and touch it up and do stuff like that. But kind of the same thing, but applied to three-dimensional objects in the world I work in. And I was there for close to eight years, nine years, somewhere right in there. Then decided to kind of, you know, you you always want to move up in your career, I guess you say. Sure. And uh, took a job in Cleveland, Ohio, as a curator of transportation history at the Crawford Auto Aviation Museum, which Cleveland, another, like Detroit, another great automotive town, especially in the early days of the automobile. They were one of the largest automotive producing towns in the country in the early 1900s. So fantastic automotive history there in Cleveland. Yeah, actually, I I skipped, I guess. I I had interned at the Alfred P. Sloan Museum as well up in Flint, where, of course, Corvette got its start there in 1953 in Flint. So a a great connection to Corvette history there. Cleveland, I was there for a little over five years before uh, probably a name that everybody that listens to this podcast knows, uh, Wendell Strode, who was now the retired executive director of the Corvette Museum here, approached me at one of our professional conferences, which the National Association of Automobile Museums, which you mentioned I serve on the board for, and talked to me about the idea of needing a curator here and someone to lead the collections at the Corvette Museum. And I guess I didn't realize he was kind of trying to convince me that that should be me uh, here at the museum. I kind of thought he was just asking for some help and guidance in in what that position would look like. But a couple years after that, I wound up accepting the job here and moving here to Bowling Green, Kentucky area. That's fantastic. What a great story. Being recruited by Wendell yourself is really a feather in your cap as well, Derek. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, even though I didn't know that's what was going on. (laughs) Well, that's the best way to get a job, though, you know, when someone approaches you and says, hey, I need some help with this, but he really means I want you to do this job. That's pretty cool. Talk also about your SAE membership and also you're a board member of the National Association of Automotive Museums. That has to be really, really cool. Yeah, so I'll start with the SAE. Of course, I'm a member there. The reason for that is because I'm involved with another organization as well that I didn't think to mention in our previous conversations, but an organization known as the Historic Vehicle Association, or the HVA. You may have heard of it. Yes. And although I don't sit on any boards or anything like that with them, I'm heavily involved in just doing presentations for them, things like that. But that led me to be asked by a group from the SAE to be involved in a committee there they have, which is the Historic Vehicle Standards Committee. And what we are doing with that committee is some people may be familiar with the National Register of Historic Buildings, where historic homes and historic buildings are put on a national register. There's an actual way to capture all the details and information about the building. If you're talking homes like, you know, is it a balloon frame construction? And what we're trying to do with the Historic Vehicle Standards Committee is create that document that captures the information of 
all the historic vehicles that are out there. So it's basically a worksheet where you'll be able to fill out what type of frame the car has, what type of suspension, all those type of things. So we can build a registry similar to what they do for historic buildings. It's actually kind of fun. And I've used one of the Corvettes here in the collection as kind of a, let's call it a beta test of the system that we're trying to put together. So it's been interesting because Corvette is kind of a unique car in automotive history, especially the early ones. So it's helped us understand some of the shortcomings of some of the things we were working on and make some changes to the worksheet that we're putting together. And then the National Association of Automotive Museums, that's an organization I've been involved with for quite some time and serve on the board. And it's basically the professional organization for automobile museums in the United States. And much like what AAM is, which is the Alliance of American Museums, that's a professional organization for all museums. And NAM, as we call it for short, is really the professional organization for automotive museums in our country. And we have conferences and we try to present professional standards for our field and how we take care of our collections and exhibit collections and all those things that you really focus on in the museum world with the education aspect of what most of us are trying to do. So it's been an interesting experience to be part of that organization and serve on the board and try to help guide it in getting professional standards for automotive museums more widely recognized. That sounds so cool because I'm sure help you really create and carve and craft your role now as the curator of the National Corvette Museum. You had all that experience before, and I'm sure it was a big help in really helping you create the ideal job there at the NCM. Isn't that true? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I think that's the key to any professional organization within any field, whether you're in the museum field or accountants. My sister's an accountant, so it was something that popped in really quick in my head, but they have a professional organization. A lot of different fields have professional organizations. It's always about learning. As I typically say, nobody knows everything, and we can always learn from others. And so being part of a professional organization like that, it only makes you better at your job and helps you craft your job in new ways, especially with the way the world changes day to day. Technology changes every day, but then we also have things like this pandemic that we're in the middle of that we're all trying to learn how to work within the world that we're living in right now. And to be able to reach out to colleagues and say, hey, what are you guys doing at your museum? This is what we're doing here. It only makes things better. I'm sure it does. Talk about your role now, Derek, at the National Corvette Museum, because it, I'm sure, has evolved since you started about two and a half years ago into what it is today. Yes, it certainly has evolved. And, and as you say, I, I still hold the title of curator here at the museum, but I'm also now the director of collections. So I oversee everything that goes on with our collections here at the museum. So it definitely has evolved from just being curator. But as the role of curator goes, my job is to basically research our collection that we already have and make sure we're always learning about the vehicles we have, the small artifacts we have, the archives we have, and making sure that I'm up to speed on everything that's here and how we can use that within the exhibits to teach our guests about Corvette history and what has happened and develop those exhibits. Always think about what exhibits that we could bring in that might be traveling exhibits that might not relate directly to Corvette history, 
but they may have an engineering twist to them or a design twist to them where you can tie in the relevance of something like stream education to Corvette history. And that's what we have the exhibit hall here at the museum for is to bring in some of those a little bit out of the box exhibits, but that can tie directly to things that go on in the automotive world, kind of like the Ratfink exhibit we have going right now. You know, we talk a lot about engineering and design in that exhibit and relating it to Tom Peters. So that's one of the big things. And then, of course, as the director of collections, it's just really leading the entire collections team here at the museum in professional standards, what projects we're going to be working on, not only exhibit-wise, but my job at Henry Ford Museum was in the conservation department. I trained in conservation of three-dimensional objects. So also leading our preservation team on the conservation projects or restorations that we're working on here at the museum. We're getting ready to undertake a collections move. We have a new building that we're turning into a collection storage facility, and we're preparing to move a bunch of the collection down to that facility, rehouse it, and make sure that it's done to professional standards and done the way that it should be in the museum world so that it's easy to access and we know it's being preserved correctly. That's wonderful news. That's great to hear that there's expansion for the National Corvette Museum. Talking about collections, speaking of collections, what cars are in your personal collection, Derek? (laughs) I have eclectic tastes. (laughs) (laughs) And actually grew up with a dad that I guess has eclectic tastes in cars as well. I am a huge fan of the early days of the automobile, so I tend to lean heavily on the early cars. So right now, I actually have a 1917 Overland Model 90 Roadster. Wow. A 1919 Chevrolet 490 Touring Car. So I do have a Chevrolet in the collection. I also have a 1923 Peerless Model 66. The reason I acquired that car for my collection is because it's one of America's early V8s. It's actually got a 332 cubic inch V8 engine in it that was co-designed between Peerless, who built the car, and Herschel Spillman, who built V8 engines, and they also were famous for building carousels, oddly. So I have that in my collection as well. And then I also have a 1961 Ford Falcon. That car actually goes back to my Henry Ford Museum days. I bought that as a daily driver back when I worked at Henry Ford Museum and uh, have just kind of kept it and held on to it because it's just one of those kind of nice cruising cars, if you will. <laughs> I, and, I remember the 61 Ford Falcons. Yeah, a little six-cylinder, right? good gas mileage. It's just kind of a nice car to, to putter around in. And I know a lot of listeners are probably saying, well, he didn't list a Corvette. I've grown up around a lot of Corvettes and working on a lot of Corvettes. I still do not have one in my collection. My wife and I are actually actively seeking to acquire a Corvette for the collection, but she comes from a Corvette family. Oh, Dad and brother both have owned many Corvettes over time, and uh, she loves Corvette as well. The problem is that we can't agree on which Corvette to get. (laughs) So what would be the ideal Corvette for you, and what would be the ideal Corvette that she would want to acquire for the collection? For me, there's probably a couple in my thought process. I'm a huge fan of the 1958 Corvette. I like the one-year unique features of it, the faux louvered hood, the chrome spears that run down the deck lid, all those little kind of just subtle styling cues that were only for 58. And then I absolutely love any mid-year C2. I love the design and the history of that mid-year car. 
and then early chrome bumper cars of the C3 generation. Right. For her, she is much more a uh, modern Corvette girl. Okay. And she would be perfectly happy with a C6 or C7 in the driveway. Although we have talked about the C8 and possibly ordering one of those, that is actually a go if we can decide on the color. We have a, a little different opinion on which color we should get <laughs> if we get a C8. So I love her dearly because it's maybe rare to find a wife that is as passionate about cars as you are. Although I know there are plenty of car girls out there. When I married her, every car she had owned was a stick shift. She only drives stick shift. But of course, as everybody knows, stick shift is going away. The manual transmission is unfortunately going by the wayside quite quickly. Actually, it was just a month and a half ago or so, we had to buy her a, a new vehicle. And it's the first time she's ever owned a automatic transmission vehicle. Oh, no. So she was a little disappointed. Yes. But we will actively seek out a, a fun, probably Corvette that is a stick shift for her to have so she can drive that. Good for her. It's good to hear that she's a Corvette person and a, and a car person as well. We're going to take a quick break. In the second segment, we're going to talk to Derek more about the current exhibits at the National Corvette Museum. You're listening to Corvette Today. Yogi Berra once said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up there. At True Wealth & Company, we take that to heart. See, at True Wealth & Company, we believe your retirement lifestyle travels through two doors. Door number one, the blue door, gives you more options, financial freedom. Your money outlives you. Every happiness you wish for in life is through the blue door. Door number two, the red door, is where you outlive your money. You rely on family, friends, or even the state to take care of you. At True Wealth & Company, we're not just financial planners. The best way to walk through the blue door is to have a written plan. Make a work-optional lifestyle a reality with our proprietary True Life Map formula. Look towards your future with anticipation, not apprehension. Having a rock-solid fiduciary partner like True Wealth & Company is essential to effective financial planning. There's no winging it. There's nothing left to chance. Look, we don't want you to become another Yogi Berraism. Give us a call today at 913-653-TRUE. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Start your financial independence and work optional lifestyle today. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth & Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. This is the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. We're talking with the curator for the National Corvette Museum, Derek Moore. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the exhibits now at the National Corvette Museum. Derek, talk a little bit more about what's on display right now at the NCM. Of course, yeah. And I, I guess I already kind of mentioned what is in the exhibit hall right now, which is, of course, our kind of our rotating exhibit space, which is the exhibit about Ed Roth. Of course, everyone knows Ed for creating the Ratfink character, his influence on the automotive world. So that exhibit is a gathering of Ed Roth built cars. Orbitron's here. We've got Tweety Pie is here. The Wishbone is here, which was unveiled at the opening of the exhibit, the restoration of it. Wow. A number of other cars, and of course, the big tie into Corvette history there is that the famed Tom Peters, of course, lead designer for so many Corvettes that are out there, was influenced by Ed Roth when he was a kid to start drawing cars, and that's what led Tom 
to be a designer for automobiles. So really cool tie to Corvette history there. But, you know, in the rest of the museum, obviously, a lot of the listeners have probably been here and, and know, you know, we try to make it, let's call it a walk through Corvette history, where you learn about the earliest days of Corvette and then work your way up through the generations and learn about what the changes were and how these changes came to evolve into the car we have today. So when you start out, of course, you learn about the very first Corvettes, the first 300 1953s that were built in Flint, Michigan. And in that same space, you learn about the influences of why Corvette came to be. So British sports cars or European sports cars, the early American sports cars that were out before Corvette, things like the Crosley Hotshot which a lot of people look at today and go, well, that's not a sports car, but it really was in 1949. Probably one of the most interesting cars we have on exhibit in that first gallery right now, we actually have the world's first fiberglass car on display, which was built in 1946 up in Detroit by a guy named Bill Stout, uh, famous for the Stout Scarabs. And we were able to borrow that from the Detroit Historical Society because when we were doing the research for the exhibit, There were actually letters written by General Motors to Dow Corning, Corning Glass, who was making the fiberglass at the time, that referenced that car, that they were researching that car, that body of that car, to understand how to make Corvette what they wanted it to be as a fiberglass body. So being able to to show those letters in the exhibit and the actual car that GM was talking about, I've noticed a lot of our visitors taking a lot of interest in that and going, wow, this is actually really interesting. We didn't know there was cars before Corvette that were fiberglass. It's a great tie to kind of bring you into the mindset of what the engineers were doing with Corvette's body. From there, of course, you move up, like I say, through the generations. Some of the cool cars you get to see when you go through, we have the Entombed Corvette on display now. That's a new exhibit to the museum. And then we also have an all-new performance gallery that has a number of very significant Corvette race cars on exhibit for people to see. And it's a fully interactive space now, so you can come in and almost see. The goal was that the visitor could actually kind of guide their own experience in that space. So they get to kind of pick what they want to learn about each car and what history they're interested in whether it's about the racing of the car or maybe the engineering of the car, the driver of the car, gives them a little more freedom in what they're learning in the space. And then from there, we actually recently worked with General Motors to help create an exhibit on the history of the mid-engine Corvette and how the 2020 Corvette actually came to be a reality and be a mid-engine sports car for America. And it starts out with Serve One, and works up from there. You know, we have XP819 on display, which is the ugly duckling, as many people referred to it as. (laughs) That's the rear-engine Corvette, not the mid-engine Corvette Experimental, but a rear-engine Corvette Experimental. And then Astro 2's here. The Reynolds Aluminum is here. Of course, the two-rotor Corvette, XP987 GT. And then the Indy Corvette. And finally, you end at a 2020 production Corvette and get to kind of see the evolution up to that car. So there is a lot to see. We don't have enough time to talk about everything that's on display, I know, but there are a lot of very cool cars on exhibit right now. 
Also, let's talk about some of the cars that have been recently donated to the National Corvette Museum. It seems like quite a few have come through recently. Yeah, it was a big goal of mine when I came on board, when I sat down with Wendell and some of our board members. Being a museum, we are about collecting the history. We are here to tell those stories, and it is great to be able to have the connections to the private collectors that own these cars and are willing to loan them to a museum to be on exhibit. But it's also really important for any museum to have what I always refer to as, let's call them the crown jewels of the collection. And those are the cars that people will make the journey to the museum to see. So it was a big goal of mine to start bringing in some of the experimental cars, some of the one-off Corvettes that GM did, to be able to promote that the museum is the place where you can come see those cars and they will be on display and you'll be able to learn about them and see them. So it has been a big push of mine and we've been fortunate in the past few months to bring in a number of those cars. I mean, we recently brought in one of the active suspension prototypes from the ZR1 era, 8990 development era, Snake Skinner 2, which was kind of the show car version of the actual Snake Skinner. Snake Skinner 2 doesn't have some of the lightweight features that Snake Skinner 1, the original one, had, but still has the hopped-up engine and full roll cage, and the car is capable of a lot more than a stock Corvette, but now that car is here. Of course, we have recently acquired the XP987 GT, the two-rotor Corvette, the only rotary-powered Corvette that was still in existence out that came out of GM because they took the four rotor and put a V8 in it and turned it into AeroVet. So that's one of those cars that is very unique, and you're only ever going to see it here at the museum. But then, you know, we bring in a number of other cars that are production cars and be able to tell the story. One of my other goals and a goal of the museum as a whole is to try to have at least one example of every year of Corvette produced. And we were missing a number of those years from the collection. We've been able to add some of those years into the collection. It's always interesting being the curator and being the guy that gets to receive the calls about donations. And we did not have a 1970 in the collection, which really shocked me that we wouldn't have a 1970. But we put out a wish list and about, I'd say it was probably about two or three months ago, in the same week, I got two different calls and two people donated their 1970 Corvettes to the museum. No kidding. Almost back to back. We got two 1970s donated to the museum collection. And they're both phenomenal cars. That's wonderful. So we're working very hard as the museum to represent Corvette history and tell the stories that have evolved out of Corvette. And sometimes that involves the competition, too. You know, I always say you can't go to the World War II Museum and only see American military artifacts. You know, you have to have that whole story of the foes, the enemies, the competition. And so we have brought in a few non-Corvettes into the collection as well to help us tell that whole story of Corvette. Very cool. And I love the videos that you guys have put out, uh, especially More Mondays, Vetcademy, and Fully Vetted. Talk about the development of those videos and the video series. Yeah, so one of the big challenges in museums is being able to get the stories out to more than just the people that come to visit. You know, as an educational institution, you're always trying to figure out ways to be creative in getting stories out and getting that history in front of people. And in some ways, almost teasing them to come to the museum. 
giving them a little bit and saying, but there's more here at the museum to come learn. So that's kind of where More Mondays evolved. We were talking with our marketing team about trying to get creative with ways to get more stories about what is here at the museum out there. And it was actually the marketing team that came up with this idea for a a series called More Mondays. And so we did that for a little while, and I know everybody noticed it. It went away. We kind of got focused on a few other things, but really more Mondays is what has evolved into fully vetted now. So we kind of took that idea of more Mondays and diving a little deeper into the story and uh, turned that into fully vetted, which is a play on words, obviously, to really help people understand the research that goes into the cars that we have in the collection and the stories that we tell here at the museum. And then Vetcademy, of course, was born out of this pandemic that we're in the midst of. We were trying to figure out we're not going to have school groups come here on field trips and learn Corvette history and the lesson plans that go along with that, that the teachers kind of create to talk about. Again, a lot of times engineering or mathematics, things like that, that they use the story of the cars for. And we were trying to figure out how do we get those stories out? And of course, what better platform than various social medias that are out there, YouTube, Facebook Live, all the different opportunities we have now in the world we live in. And our education coordinator, Deb Howard, who you see on those Vet Academy films, she put together this idea and holds one of the other staff in. I've done a couple of the Vet Academies, and we try to keep it very simple for the kids. It's a very basic story about something in Corvette or automotive history. And then there's always kind of a, a little lesson or little experiment or something you can do at home that goes along with that story. That's kind of to help them keep that education going. They're not going to school and not getting these field trips. And, you know, I know one of them I did that was really one of my favorites was we were talking about the uh, automotive assembly line and the history of it. Of course, using the exhibit here at the museum that shows the marriage of the body and chassis during the C3 era. We came up with this idea to tell the kids at home that if you have tacos for dinner, you take the taco shell and you sit there and you put all your own stuff inside that taco. Well, that's the old method of building an automobile that was around in the late 1800s and early 1900s. They were built at a station. And then once they were built, they would move down and out the building and be ready for sale. But if you wanted to practice the assembly line, well, you take your taco shell And you put the meat in it, but then you hand it to whoever's sitting next to you, and they put the next topping on, and then they hand it. And by the time it gets all the way around the table back to you, you have a fully assembled taco, but it's been basically assembled on a line. And to try to help them understand the difference between stationary assembly and the assembly line process that, of course, Henry Ford brought to the automotive world. Of course, he did not invent it. He just brought it to. Right. That's a great evolutionary thing and a great parallel to the automotive assembly line. One of the things I really enjoyed about More Mondays, you had an episode that showed some of the historical Corvette items that are stored at the museum, but not necessarily on display. Talk about a few of those items that are there that people might not be able to see all the time because those are really, really cool. That really piqued my interest. Yes. I'll kind of preface this, let's say, with a statement, which is every museum in the world has their storage facilities and their archives and all that. It's pretty common that in the museum world, about 30%, let's say, you know, 30, 35% of your artifacts are typically on exhibit. 
well, that other roughly 70% tend to be in storage. And it's just due to the space that we have for exhibits. You know, we don't always have enough space to exhibit every artifact. Right. So in storage, we can condense them together a little more tightly and have those in storage. And here at the museum and at every museum, we try to rotate those collections really as often as possible. And that's why you see exhibit changeovers, because we want to get those other artifacts out and let people see them. But yeah, some of the cool things that we have tucked away in storage, we actually just brought some of them out for the new performance gallery. Some of the racing stuff we have is just absolutely amazing. Some of Don Yanko's helmets, Dick Thompson's racing helmets, some of Dick Thompson's jackets. We do have what we refer to as textile collections. So we have race suits in the collection. We have old jackets from guys like Dick Thompson and Don Yanko. We have some of Zora's. Obviously, everybody knows we have his old race suit and a helmet and goggles because it's on display. Yes. So we have a lot of those things tucked away. You know, we brought out some of the interesting Don Yanko artifacts. Actually, one of the coolest things, and it was, I believe it was on a more Monday. I think that was the series we did it on. We pulled a few of the Yanko artifacts out of the cabinet they were stored in. You know, it was Don Yanko's watch. But the cool thing about it is Don famously drove for Gulf Oil, Gulf Racing, back in the 60s. And in 63, he drove the Z06s for Gulf Oil. Well, when you flip this watch over on the back, it's engraved to Don from Grady, 63. And, of course, that Grady is Grady Davis of Gulf Oil. And it was the watch that was presented to Don Yanko for driving the 1963 season for Gulf Oil. And that right there is just an amazing artifact in its own right. We have so many of those things. I mean, I, you know, I'm racking my brain here trying to think of, you know, I mean, I know we have a uh, basically a one-to-one scale drawing of the 1954 Corvette chassis that's in the archives. You can imagine it's one-to-one. It's the size of a 1954 Corvette, and you know, you got to kind of carefully unfold it and lay it out to be able to actually see it. But we have copies of the Zora, the famous letter that Zora wrote. Just so many things that we're trying to be more proactive in rotating through the exhibits so folks can really see these stories. And that's another great reason to have the series like More Mondays are fully vetted. We can pull those artifacts out and talk about them on that series and we're able to get those out in front of people without necessarily having them on exhibit at that moment. Right. We're talking with Derek Moore. Derek is the curator for the National Corvette Museum. And in segment number three, we're going to talk about some of the upcoming exhibits at the NCM. You're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. Fact. According to the March of Dimes, 40,000 babies are born each year in the United States with heart defects. At Athletic Testing Solutions, we take that, well, to heart. ATS offers the ATS Heart Check, a series of non-invasive tests to identify possible hidden heart defects in your kid's heart. Frequently, the symptoms of sudden cardiac arrest are masked or misdiagnosed. The ATS Heart Check can help detect congenital heart problems or abnormalities that don't show up during regular checkups or a sports physical. The ATS Heart Check is a terrific option, and it gives you peace of mind that your child is heart safe. Sudden cardiac arrest claims on average 130 young lives every week. Don't let your kids be a statistic. The ATS Heart Check takes only 20 to 30 minutes and it utilizes an EKG, an echocardiogram ultrasound of the heart. Visit ATSHeartCheck.com. Schedule your child today. Call toll-free 888-537-2597. That's 888-537-2597. 
You're listening to the Corvette Today Podcast with Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. Our guest today, Derek Moore. Derek is the curator for the National Corvette Museum. In this segment, we're going to talk about some of the upcoming exhibits. As we get out of the pandemic, you can go visit the National Corvette Museum, which is now open. But Derek, talk about some of the planned future exhibits and car displays for the National Corvette Museum. Yeah, certainly. We always have ideas about future exhibits as we think about what we just talked about, what collections we have in storage, what stories are out there that we haven't told yet. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here with talking about some of the future exhibits we're planning, but one of the next exhibits, well, the next exhibit coming up in our exhibit hall, everyone's probably heard our Ratfink exhibit, our Ed Roth exhibit has been extended, so people can come see it because we know people missed seeing it during the shutdowns, so we've extended that out, but the next exhibit coming in after that is actually powered by Corvette. And it's going to be a look at some of the vehicles that were produced that used Corvette drivelines. Some people don't know that GM would actually sell drivelines to other companies to put in their vehicles. So one of the most famous is ESO, ESO Grifo, ESO Revolta. They used Corvette drivelines back in the 1960s, 70s era. There were a number of ESOs produced over in Italy, and they're an Italian sports car but they use American Corvette engines, transmissions, driveline, the whole thing, because they didn't want to take the time to engineer or have the costs of engineering necessarily their own driveline. Wow. So we'll probably have at least one ESO. We know we have one ESO. I'm hoping to maybe bring in two, a Revolta and a Grifo. Bizzarini, which was kind of involved in that ESO story, also used Corvette drivelines. And then you had a British company called Gordon Keeble that used Corvette drivelines as well. They came over to GM and bought a bunch of them and built a car and put the Corvette driveline in it and basically built these Italian or British sports cars that were powered by American V8 muscle. It's interesting because it's kind of turning the story of Corvette on its head a little bit because, of course, the reason Corvette was produced was because really the American GIs were importing those European sports cars after World War II back into the U.S., and GM was like, whoa, we got to do something here. The Corvette's such a great car that some of these companies were just like, you know what, let's just use that engine in ours because it's just fantastic. We're going to look at that story, and there's going to be some other cars. I don't want to reveal everything about the exhibit, but we're going to talk about that. Each car will be partnered with the Corvette that had the same driveline. That way people can understand, okay, this is the Corvette of that year, and then this is the other car of that same year running the same engine and see the differences and similarities that there were. That'll be a very interesting display for sure. Yeah. Talk about some of the technology updates and some of the touchscreens and things that you guys have done to improve the National Corvette Museum. Yeah. So obviously, I think everybody knows that museums are evolving with the technology of the world. You know, a lot of us understand that people just don't want to come to a museum and have it be what museums used to be, which were just buildings with historic items housed inside of them with a simple label. You walk through and read and look at the pieces and look at the artifacts. Hopefully, you learn something while you read these labels. 
there's better ways to present information to this day. And we all know that the younger generations today, they don't go anywhere without their cell phone. I mean, most of us don't go anywhere without our cell phone. But the younger generations, they look to their cell phone as basically their world. I mean, everything that they do is pretty much in that piece of technology. So they're used to touch screens. They're used to a digital world. So we need to evolve in that way. And so we've really made a push to bring in more touchscreen interactive activities in the museum where you can, again, kind of like with that new performance gallery, you can kind of guide your own educational experience or what you want to learn as a visitor here at the museum. As you go through, the technology gets a little more intense as you go through as well, kind of keeping with that development of Corvette. Not a very technologically advanced car when it starts, but as the years go by, more and more technology evolves into the car as it becomes available. And that's kind of the same way we're going with the museum. You start out in the first generation, second generation, you're not going to get a lot of that touchscreen interactivity because the car wasn't that interactive. But then as you evolve through the museum and through Corvette history, you're going to see that there's more and more interactive components to the exhibits to get you deeper and deeper involved with the story of the car. Very cool. Also talk about, we touched on this in the first segment, but talk more about the new storage building and some of the new collection of cars that's going in there, because that really piqued my interest. Yeah, so we did acquire a building that was actually adjacent to the property the museum exists on. A lot of listeners have been here to the museum and know the building as the old FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police building. During anniversary and bash, a lot of the road tours met there in the parking lot and left from that spot. Well, the FOP wanted to get rid of it, and so the museum acquired that building, and we decided to turn that into part of our collections campus. Basically, what we're doing is we've gone in, done some renovation work to the building, put a fire suppression system in. Of course, we want our artifacts while they're in storage to be safe. And we are turning that building into what we will kind of refer to as a small and medium artifact storage facility. So the rooms have pallet racking and cabinets and a lot of those smaller, let's say like the trophies in the collection, some of the small three-dimensional objects. Even our engine collection can fit into that building. Oh, good. We're going through and making sure everything is properly housed for preservation. In other words, housed in a way that is going to preserve those artifacts for the next 500 years. We have a whole methodology behind what we do. We have acid-free containers, you know, boxes, acid-free liners that we use when we store artifacts and make sure they're protected properly from any damage. So we're actively going through our collection and moving items down to that building, rehousing them. And as we do that, we have a database that we actually track every artifact in. And as we move them, we actually change their location within the database to reflect where they've been moved to. So we always know where the artifacts are when we're looking for them. So a little of that behind the scenes that I think a lot of people don't ever get to see or hear about. But it's kind of one of the cool parts of the job in some ways that at least makes you feel good when you go home and you know you've safely protected Betty Skelton's Daytona Beach Trophy for eternity. <laughs> when is that extra building going to be open? We are aiming to be able to do some tours of it, but it'll, of course, be on a schedule. It won't be accessible to visitors on a regular basis because, of course, there's always security issues when you have a storage facility. But we are hoping that by, like, 
bash of next year when we can kind of have that return to a normal event here on the campus. We're hoping to be able to start giving tours at those big events of what we're doing. Very nice. Are there any plans to take some of the Corvettes that you have on the road for display? I always have plans to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and this year has been killer for us because all the car shows have been canceled. All the big events have been canceled. But yeah, we've been actively trying to get out to more of the car shows with vehicles. Of course, getting to some of the concours events. We were at the Atlanta Concours last year. We tried to always get up to the Cincinnati Concours d'Elegance at Alta Park up in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's kind of a somewhat local Concours, I call it, because it's only a few hours away. Of course, the Concours up at Keeneland over near Lexington. We try to get out, and taking the collection on the road is another way that we can bring those stories to people that might not ever get to the museum. That's one of the lessons I feel like I learned very early in my career when I was at Henry Ford Museum. I had opportunity to take one of the vehicles from the Henry Ford Museum out to one of the Pebble Beach concours out in California. One of the random folks that had come to the concours walked up and basically looked at me and said, is that the real car? Yes, that is the real car. He just looked at me and said, I never thought I'd get to see that car in my life. I don't have time to go to Detroit and go to the museum just to see the car. He's like, I am so glad you guys brought this car to the show. That's a fascinating story. Yeah, that stuck with me. And, I'm, you know, it's the reason to take these cars. It's the reason we exist is to be able to preserve the cars and their story and share them with the public. So, yeah, we're always trying to get the cars out. You know, I'm working with a couple uh, museums, one up in Louisville and one down in Nashville. We may be loaning some cars out to them for exhibits they're doing. Once this whole world of the pandemic ends, we are working with the Smithsonian Museum to actually loan a Corvette to them for an exhibit they're going to be doing in the near future at the National Air and Space Museum. Wow. We are actively trying to get some of the cars out to some different locations and to some different shows around the country. Very cool. Derek, thank you so much for being on Corvette today. Any final thoughts that you'd like to parlay here? Oh, no. I mean, thank you, Steve, for having me on. I mean, I think the final thoughts are just that to everybody listening, the museum is always evolving and we're always trying to bring fresh, exciting stories into the exhibits. And if you haven't been here in a while, you got to get back because there are a lot of great cars on exhibit right now and a lot of great stories related to not only just the development of Corvette, but racing history. And of course, the great news that the car has become the mid-engine sports car that Zora had always hoped it would be. Absolutely. Derek, thanks again for being on Corvette today. I really appreciate you doing it. I'd love to have you back as we change out some of the exhibits and get some fresh things up that people can see. It'll bring more people to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and to see the National Corvette Museum. That sounds great, Steve. Thanks to our flagship sponsors of Corvette today. Hendrick Chevrolet of Kansas City at ChevyUSA.com and MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at DJ at gmail.com. That's DJ at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at Steve Garrett DJ. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.